Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a cocktail of the best and some of the strangest stories from across our coverage. I'm Richard Cockett, a senior editor at The Economist, and on your menu this week, the sudden end of an era in Zimbabwe, trouble in the American marijuana industry, and the sound of silence in the frozen Baltic. But first, what they don't tell you is our cover line in Most of the World This Week. Two years ago in Paris, the world promised to keep the increase in global average temperatures since pre-industrial times well below two degrees. To achieve this, countries need to do more than just limit their carbon emissions. They must actively remove huge amounts of carbon from the atmosphere. But there is almost no public discussion about how to make this happen. Our cover leader argues that it's time to get positive about negative emissions. Fully 101 of the 116 models the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uses to chart what lies ahead assume that carbon will be taken out of the air in order for the world to have a good chance of meeting the 2 degrees Celsius target. The total amount of CO2 to be soaked up by 2100 could be a staggering 810 billion tonnes, as much as the world's economy produces in 20 years at today's rate. This is a Herculean task, and the fundamental problem is that scientists still don't know how it can be done. One option is to plant more forests, which act as a carbon sink, or to replace the deep ploughing of fields with shallow tillage, which helps soils absorb and retain more CO2. Another is to apply carbon capture and storage to biomass-burning power plants, stashing the carbon sucked up by crops or trees burnt as fuel. Fancier ideas exist, Carbon could be seized directly from the air using chemical filters and stored. Or minerals could be ground up and sowed over land or sea, accelerating from eons to years, the natural weathering process that binds them to CO2 to form carbonate rocks. These options all sound super in the lab, but the question remains whether they can be done at scale. Persuading Earth's swelling population to plant an India's worth of new trees or crops to produce energy, as the climate simulations require, looks highly improbable. Changing agricultural practices would be cheaper, but scientists doubt that this would suck up enough CO2 even to offset the greenhouse gases released by farming. Direct air capture and enhanced weathering use less land, but both are costlier. And with little prospect of a profit from any of these methods, it's hard to find funding to develop them. This year, Britain became just the first country to devote cash to such projects. America is eyeing grants too, despite Mr Trump. Britain's one-off £8.6 million, that's $11.3 million, is footling. Roughly $15 billion a year goes to research into all low-carbon technologies. That pot needs to increase, and more of it should be channelled to extracting carbon. 
To find out how more countries can be persuaded to put their money where it counts before it's too late, pick up a copy of the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. That was for cover in most of the world, but in our Africa and Britain editions, breaking news pushed carbon capture off the front page. Our Africa editor, Jonathan Rosenthal, spoke to our foreign editor, Robert Guest, on The Week Ahead, our current affairs podcast about what might come next for Zimbabwe. Uh, Transferring power from one autocrat to another is really not what people want. There is meant to be an election before the middle of next year. Uh, Mr. Mugabe's government has routinely rigged them. There is very little reason to think that uh, Mr. Manangagwa, if he takes over, will do a better job. So we really need outsiders to come in. And by outsiders, we don't just mean SADC, the the, the Southern African Regional uh, Group or even the African Union, we actually need the UN or other much more credible international bodies to come in, have a proper election. We're not talking about uh, soldiers on the streets, but we are talking about uh, election monitors and, and possibly people running the show. And you can hear the rest of that interview by subscribing to The Week Ahead on your podcast app of choice, or read our in-depth coverage of the developments in the Middle East and Africa section in print or online. Now, all leadership inevitably invites challenges to authority of very different kinds. Over the last two weeks, The Economist Asks podcast has been exploring the impact of Donald Trump's presidency a year after the election. Last week, Anne McElvoy spoke to Ram Emanuel, formerly Barack Obama's chief of staff and now the outspoken mayor of Chicago, about challenging the man in the White House. Look, when I first met with him when he was president-elect, talking about welcoming cities slash sanctuary cities, I said, look, I I disagree with you on every level morally, but let me just not approach it on a moral level. I said, you have a big investment here in Chicago. He goes, yes. I said, you have a big investment in New York. He said, yes. I said, you have a big investment in D.C. He said, yes. You have other cities you're investing in? Yes. I said, have you noticed that any city that you invest in, they're all sanctuary cities? Why don't you go invest in a city that's not a sanctuary city? You don't invest in those cities because they're not dynamic cities. We're dynamic cities because we welcome immigrants. I said, so as a real estate developer, let's follow the money. And our third and final special American edition of The Economist Asks will be available to download this Thursday. So keep your ears peeled for that one. Illinois is one of the now 29 American states to have legalized marijuana. Seven of them permit recreational use. The cannabis industry is growing, but not all companies are flying high as an article in this week's United States section explained. After he was busted in 1974, Jeffrey Edmondson, a small-time dealer of marijuana, cocaine and amphetamines in Minneapolis, faced a daunting bill from the taxman for all his illicit income. He argued that he should be allowed to deduct $100,000 worth of business expenses, and a court agreed. Enraged, Congress revised the tax code in the early Reagan years, forbidding tax exemptions for drug traffickers. The drug's illicit past has unintended consequences for its commercial present. Cannabis operations, now legitimate in many states, are forbidden from the usual business deductions and face crippling tax bills of as much as 70% of revenue. The federal government still considers pot illegal, which complicates matters further. Companies cannot ship materials across state lines. Compliance fears limit access to bank accounts, forcing companies to hoard cash and conduct business via armoured van. 
lopsided tax incentives force firms to integrate vertically since some labour and administrative costs can be deducted for growing operations but not from dispensaries. Even the industry's successes throw up difficulties. Because of expanded supply and competition, the wholesale price of a pound of marijuana in Colorado has dropped from a peak of $2,000 in January 2015 to $1,300. Prices are seasonal and tend to spike in ski season, when tourists partake in the local flora. So, with American investors still wary, marijuana businesses are looking elsewhere. Firms are moving north to Canada, listing themselves on Canadian stock markets to raise capital and then investing the funds in American companies. One such company, Ianthus Capital Holdings, has raised nearly $50 million. So maybe every little thing is going to be all right. Now, next time you rise up in the morning, smile at the rising sun and those little birds pitch by your doorstep, take a closer look at them. Scientists have long wondered why within the same species, in exactly the same habitat, one bird could be much more brightly coloured than another. New evidence holds a surprising explanation, as science correspondent Matt Kaplan explained on our Babbage podcast. Is it possible, for example, for a bird to have an extremely efficient immune system that is better able to grab all of those little compounds that they're feeding on in the natural world and that that might yield better coloration. For example, if you eat, let's say, a berry that yields a certain number of these color compounds, you don't have to be ill to not get a lot of color. If your digestive system doesn't do a good job of collecting that color, then that's going to make you look drab as well. So these researchers hypothesized that that you may also be the color of the efficiency of your digestive system. And Babbage is available every Wednesday. If you found that a little indigestible, you may find relief in our books and arts section, which this week ventured deep into a place almost entirely devoid of colour and sound, and indeed visible life. Icebreaker by Horatio Clare, a British non-fiction writer, is an encounter with the void. It describes ten winter days on a Finnish icebreaker, one of a fleet that works at perilously close quarters with ice-trapped cargo ships in the Bay of Bothnia at the northern limit of the Baltic Sea. He writes of seeing silence, and the ship itself seems to him no more than the tip of a pencil line trailing off into empty space. There is no peace in this stillness. By the end of the journey, the shuddering emptiness has got to Mr Clare. He describes a nightmare in which he foresees a world populated solely by humans and machines. No bird, no flourish of being in landscape, no iteration of spirit in form. But in his writing, Mr Clare finds life there still. His dead mineral world, all crystalline ice and hard metal, stirs and quickens. Ice sidles aboard, rinds the rails with icicles, is all but alive. While down below in the engine room, there grow vines of copper piping and sprouting thermometers, the fuel pumps budded with bolts and flowering stopcocks. And this is also the story of the sailors who choose to live in this empty place. These gentle inward men become, in a sense, his witnesses to the human spirit. He loves them for their jokes and stories, for their courage, and even for their Finnish silences. Relaxed silences, companionable, unhappy, charged and thoughtful silences, even lyrical silences. He writes that his journey has broken open from within him both a heaven and a horror. But the reader can have no real doubt as to which side he leans.
And finally, this week's obituary remembered a man for whom cold, open water held no fear. The swimmer, Terry Lachlan. Swimmers, especially keen ones, tend to treat water as the enemy. Pound it with your arms and thrash it with your legs. To go farther and faster, try harder. That effort-intensive approach can work well in land-based sports, but it fails in water, which is 800 times denser than air. Humans just aren't really designed for water. Evolution is partly to blame for putting breathing holes and muscles in the wrong place, but much of the effort expended in propulsion is wasted too. Knobbly limbs tend to create extra commotion. The harder you try, the worse it gets. Terry Lachlan's answer was to jump right in. Total immersion. Not staying in the water forever, much as he might have liked to had he been born with gills or a blowhole, but mental immersion in the art, more than a science, he said, of slipping through it. Since he coined the term in 1989, Total Immersion has become a best-selling book, a much-watched series of videos, a coaching business and a catchphrase among hydrophiles the world over. It turned even the most timid novices into smooth, confident stroke-makers and honed the technique of champions. It didn't come naturally. It was a lifetime's work. He was just born with heavy legs, he reckoned. They dragged behind him, low in the water, slowing him down unless he made prodigious, exhausting kicks. It did not stop him being an acclaimed swimming coach, but he was under no illusions about his own prowess. Terminal mediocrity, he called it later. A feeling sadly familiar to many of us. It took a total shift in perspective towards an unfriendly element. It might sound airy-fairy, but the ultimate aim was to achieve communion with the water, he said. Humans will never be able to swim as efficiently as dolphins, but at least they can try. So, that's the end of this week's tasting menu, but you can achieve total immersion in this week's issue of The Economist and find all our other podcasts online. Keep sending in your feedback by email to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Thank you.